Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you, if you could? Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What's it like to start Netflix, Redbox, MoviePass? You've basically, when you've started those three companies, you've changed the entire entertainment industry forever. So I get to talk to Mitch Lowe, co-founder of these companies. His book is called Watch and Learn. And I ask him very direct questions. I want to know what the future of content is, what the future of entertainment is. I've worked in the entertainment industry, pitched TV shows all over the entertainment industry. I'm skeptical of a lot of things. He was gracious enough to answer my questions. Here's Mitch Lowe. What we realized in the beginning of this podcast is that he was on the podcast once before in 2014, so eight years ago. So welcome back to the podcast, Mitch Lowe, after an eight-year absence from it. Here he is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Mitch, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. For your second appearance on the podcast, Mitch Lowe, co-founder of Netflix, a small little company you might have heard of, Redbox, and MoviePass. Mitch was on episode 66 back on December 1st, 2014. We both had trouble remembering it. Mitch, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's really great to be back. And Mitch, what's going on in your life that you decided to write a book and go on podcast again? <laughs> well, you know, I, uh, I've become a uh, speaker. I kind of got roped into it by Mark Randolph, who is really the true uh, founder of Netflix. He was writing a book called It Will Never Work, which both he and I uh, share, share a very common- I love that title. Yeah, understanding of that. And he was getting all these offers uh, to go all over the world uh, speaking about kind of the culture we created at Netflix, the innovation, kind of how the whole business got together. And he decided that uh, he needed to spend time writing and sitting down and, and not traveling. So he introduced me to his agent. Uh, we hit it off. I kind of became uh, the Mark Randolph stand-in. And, and in fact, and today I would say I'm the Mark Randolph uh, discount. Uh, when you can't afford his fees, uh, you go to Mitch. So in these uh, speeches I would give, uh, especially at universities and conferences, I just found, you know, it really kind of interesting sharing stories of, about how we developed the culture there and the innovation, the kind of that culture of innovation and I thought, you know, putting it all in a book, uh, not as kind of, you know, here's what you got to do. It's more like I'm telling stories of the processes we went through it at each of those three companies, some that failed, some that succeeded. But it's really meant to share those stories and ideally help other founders and startup inventors. And has it worked? Have you been, I mean, you have a lot of experience, obviously, in entrepreneurship. You've been there, done that. You've had highs, you've had lows. You started out with crazy beginnings. Have you been able to help entrepreneurs? I think so. You know, some of them say that I have. What's like a success story? Because I find entrepreneurs are, as you know, are a particular breed. They have mm -hmm. high conviction in their ideas, but that means they have high conviction in other things like funding, equity, exiting, you know, all uh -huh. the kind of skill sets around entrepreneurship. 
And that high conviction sometimes could have negative consequences in some areas. Yeah. Well, I've, you know, there's a number of examples, but uh, one of them uh, were these guys in uh, Mexico that acquired, when I left uh, Redbox, we purchased for $165 million all the Blockbuster Express kiosks and put them in a warehouse in Cincinnati. And I was looking for people to buy them who wouldn't compete with Redbox, but would start their own business either outside the U.S., or in the U.S., but not a DVD rental uh, business. And I found these guys in who lived in San Diego, but did business in Mexico. And what did I help them do? Not only did I sell them uh, 4,000 of these kiosks, but as they kind of hit the wall where things weren't working right or the customer wasn't embracing the product, I helped them evolve and pivot and now those guys are have repurposed uh, those kiosks to be CBD vending machines. I love it. And they're opening them all over the U.S., uh, about 4,000 uh, locations uh, doing really well. It's just one, but I, I hear mostly from college students who say, you've given me the inspiration to start my own company. And, and that's, that, to me, is like a really great reward. It's interesting because I, I, you know, the reason I'm asking this is actually just yesterday I gave a talk at a university to mm -hmm. an undergraduate class on entrepreneurship. And it's interesting seeing these students. Some, it, it's kind of just maybe, I don't want to say a blank look, they're not stupid, but they just sort of don't really understand mm -hmm. why someone would go through the suffering that's often involved mm -hmm. in entrepreneurship. And other people are just like hungry, like they, yeah. want to be entrepreneurs and they have lots of motivations. Of course, money is one of them, but there's mm -hmm. other motivations being able to do what you love and, and being in some sense, your own boss, although it's a, it's a different kind of, uh, uh, you have a lot, many bosses when you're an in some sense, you're the opposite of a boss as an entrepreneur. <laughs> Everybody's your boss, your employees, your customers, and so on. But what do you think is a good characteristic for a young person to be an entrepreneur. And then I want to get to the topics of your well, book. I think, you know, the characteristics are, I think, more a mix of two founders working together. I think, you know, the when I see um, an entrepreneur who is trying to do it on their own, uh, you know, they never cover the whole, you know, they might have perseverance and they might have an analytical mind, but maybe they don't have people skills. And so... Oftentimes, I find the combination of two people who really have kind of complement each other are the best. But the definite, you know, critical uh, behavior is comfort with ambiguity. You've got to be comfortable uh, going forward without always knowing exactly the right path. You need to try things. You need to experiment. Uh, you need to kind of do these a b testing and and oftentimes you don't know you know what's going to pay off and what's not. So you know, I've seen people who aren't comfortable with ambiguity uh, like failing you know miserably in in the startup uh, world. This is really interesting because comfort with ambiguity doesn't just mean from what you're saying, it doesn't just mean, hey, I'm gonna try stuff and I don't know what happens. It also means, I'm going to try stuff, but I have a back door in case it doesn't work so I can try new things. Yeah, exactly. So that so that's part of the skill set of being comfortable with ambiguity is making sure you 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 as often as possible can build that back door. Like you never want to go to Las Vegas and and bet your remaining cash on black and and <laughs> hey, I don't know what's going to happen, but let's see. Right. That's a real uh critical component of it and and that's why oftentimes um you know, you need that complement uh, person, uh, you know, I remember also, I think there's what is really driving you and just to make money is probably the weakest driver. You know, that is not kind of a recipe for success. If all you want to do is be rich and take your helicopter into your, you know, high school reunion, it's really, it's what problem are you going to solve? You know, what is something that's affected you personally that didn't work right? You know, Netflix was, everybody was upset about late fees. No one liked the limited inventory available. 
Uber, you know, they wanted a car to show up wherever they were. But it's, I think it's finding those things that are broken in life that you've felt and fixing those. Those are incredible uh, motivations. Uh, others, which really drove me, was when I first told my wife and kids about Netflix and they laughed and said, that's the stupidest idea we've ever heard, Dad. The motivation of proving them wrong, you know, got me through a lot of those tough moments where you might have given up, uh, you know, had I not tried to do that. Yeah, it's funny that your wife and kids said that because I remember when my wife first ordered DVDs through Netflix and I'm uh -huh. like, that's crazy. Like, I know me personally, I would never return them. Not because yeah. I'm stealing them, but I don't even know where the post office is. Like, how am I going to return these DVDs? <laughs> like, it, see, it seems like you're giving me a homework assignment when I just want to watch a movie and there's already HBO and, and so on. Yeah. But then she was regularly ordering and sending, as long as she was taking care of the sending back, we were having a fun time watching like two, three movies a week, sending them back, getting new ones, and, and it, it worked. You know, the product team at Netflix really, you know, pulled a rabbit out of the hat. It wouldn't have worked if they hadn't developed this concept of a queue, which was go in and make a list of all the movies you want to see. And so that when you send one back, you're not forced to then go in and pick a new movie. You've already got a put together list. Right. Yeah. So they really, you know, solved a lot of problems, not 100% of them, not the one you described. You know, streaming definitely gets you closer to what uh, I'm sure you would love. But the queue is very interesting because a typical scenario we've all been through is you go, I just remember in college, going to a, the video store with my girlfriend and literally having like the biggest argument of our lives because we couldn't decide on a movie. And so when you have the queue, it's kind of already decided, oh, we just got the, we got the next movie. <laughs> like, right, let's just right. put it we, in. Your decision, it kind of, your decision-making ability goes away after you decide it's in the queue somewhere. Your decision-making ability goes away. Jay, you got to yep. write that one down <laughs> because that's key. When you remove decisions from people, you solve problems because decisions take energy and anything that takes energy is a little bit of a problem. Like if I have yeah. to walk up a hill, that's a problem. It's hard to walk up a hill. So, yeah. so, uh, cause it takes too much energy, but how did you know, was it just like a random feature? Oh, let's make a cue because what if they have more than they want to rent more than we can give. Let's just put the rest right. in the queue. Was that just by accident? And, and how did you realize that that was a key feature? You know, the fortunate thing about devising those features was that everybody, like 80 plus percent of people were video store renters. So people had these experiences kind of on a regular basis. And so as the product team was talking through this you know, you get four movies, you can trade them out whenever you want. One of the people just popped up and said, yeah, but I don't want to have to go in and, you know, I'm, if I'm going to lose the value of my subscription, if I don't get something right away, and maybe I'm not in the mood to go shopping. So they thought of this cue. So they, you know, really good product people walk through the process just like a customer does. And they try to put themselves in the, in the, the shoes of the customer. And when you're a video store renter, previous to that, you had a lot of the kind of the visceral understanding of that process. So they, it just came out of continuing to talk about it. You know, one of the biggest innovations later on at Netflix was the post play feature that automatically goes to the next episode of a series. You know, no one did that before Netflix. That uh, if you were on, you know, cable, uh, you had to, and you wanted to see the next episode, you had to do stop, back, search, play. And someone came into the office one day and said, wait a minute, I'm probably going to want to watch the next episode. Why don't we just have it go automatically in 15 seconds to the next step? Those were the kinds of consumer features that built amazing loyalty. And again, that was another way of removing a decision from the consumer. Like you yeah. don't have to decide what to watch next. It's already playing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like while you were and thinking I'll, about what to watch next, the next episode started. Well, I got to continue this episode. Right, right. And, and I'll tell you, you have hit upon 
kind of the biggest value of subscription. When you have subscription, you can watch whatever you want, whether it was at Netflix or, you know, my big failure of MoviePass. You basically remove that a la carte decision making. Like, is this movie worth it? You know, if you went to Blockbuster, is it worth $4? I don't know. Maybe I'll wait. If it's a movie theater and it's $10 to $15, you know, maybe I'll wait for it to come on Netflix. So by removing that, you now want to discover new stuff and you're willing to take risks because, you know, you can walk out. You know, it's very interesting. You mentioned this about subscription. So content has essentially, let's call it two models, advertisements, you know, you sell advertisements on your content and yep. subscription. And it feels like subscription is a better business model because if you subscribe for a year and there's a recession through that year, advertising budgets could stop in a second, but yeah, subscription, you've already subscribed. So you have to keep going. So it mm -hmm. helps companies subscribe to get through recessions more easily. And it, and it allows for more reliable predictions of revenue. And yet wall street in general doesn't like subscription revenues for some reason. Yeah. Like when they talk to the wall street journal, let's say, or let's say there's a public company that's a, a magazine. They want to know your advertising revenue. They don't care about how many subscribers you have. Like, why do yeah. you think Wall Street, smart people in general, but why do you think they care so much about advertising when subscription is like the best model in the world? Yeah, well, you know, advertising has its shortcomings and also doesn't appeal to everybody. That's why, you know, the big growth area in streaming is advertising uh, supported uh, streaming sites. But I think what Wall Street recognizes is that people who are paying are more reliable as establishing the value. It's kind of like if you can get someone to pay for your service in a subscription, it's diluted. You know, they like kind of the whole ball of wax, but they don't, they're not really voting with their eyeballs um, as much. There is a proxy for it in the streaming world, but I think the, I think the Wall Street understands advertisers only pay when they're getting the right kind of eyeballs on your site. But why do you think Wall Street likes advertising supported businesses better than subscription supported businesses, Netflix excluded from this? I think there's some odd parts in subscription. You don't need to make the money off of an individual piece of content. Therefore, you can subsidize lots of expensive content because of the subscription, the spreading out of the revenue. And many, many series, you know, lose money. Whereas in an advertising or a pay-per-view uh, model, you know, people have to pay, right? You have to make money on each individual product uh, that you acquire. So it puts a higher level of discipline in your biggest expenditure, uh, which is creating content. You know, whether it's, um, you know, a newspaper or a journal or it's a streaming site. So, you know, you've had this common theme running through your career. And, and this speaks to the motivation issue. Like if your only motivation was money, then it probably wouldn't work out. Like even from your stories from when you were a kid or when you were traveling around Europe, you were always interested in entertainment and entertainment people and movie producers and content from you know your first video distribution company to Netflix to Redbox to MoviePass obviously we see a theme here in a few minutes i want to get back to Netflix cuz there's just so many fascinating questions there and i know you weren't involved the whole way but i know also you you obviously followed it mm -hmm. MoviePass this seemed like such a fantastic idea and obviously you thought so as well mm -hmm. what was quite the issue that you know ultimately led to its demise and unfortunately I wish you had survived two more months because then you would have held out for big stimulus packages. <laughs> but what was the problem? It was um, a business model that needed more time. And there was things we could have done to kind of slow down the growth. You know, in hindsight, you know, that growth really brought us down. Because if you are attracting and reinvigorating the theater-going business, what you need is you need all these side revenue streams. And, you know, you need discounts from the big theaters. You need to make money by turning that card into a purchase vehicle for coffee and dinner and so on before and after the movie. You need to sell advertising because our advertising was incredibly effective driving people to small films. 
So you need all these streams of revenue and discounts that just were going to take a lot longer than, than the money that we had to survive. You know, if you look at Spotify, Spotify lost $1.4 billion before they got to a break even. They had the time because they had the backers and the allies uh, to be able to pay huge amounts of royalties uh, until the revenue started catching up with it. And we just didn't have the time. But, you know, Spotify also is a business that works with the person sitting at home. And I think a mm -hmm. lot of businesses lately are about, because of the pandemic in part and, and for other reasons, about how can we make the experience of sitting at home better? <laughs> so like Uber yeah. Eats, Netflix, you know, right. and, and online courses. I can just sit at home all day now and right. the world comes to me. <laughs> And people, yep. movie audiences were already declining. And you see this even in the quality of the content. Like it's just blockbuster hits now, like Marvel yeah. movies that make it just brainstorming for a second. And so MoviePass, for people who don't know, is a subscription service for movie tickets. It's a great idea, except if the movie going audience was declining, how do you fix that problem? Yeah, well, that's that's what we proved uh, we, could, we could make a big impact on. The people who uh, join MoviePass went to twice as many movies as they went before MoviePass. Mm -hmm. And 2018, where we were very active for the first six months before we our demise started affecting us, uh, we bought 6.6% of all the movie tickets in the country. And that was the first year in 10 years that there was more tickets sold than the previous year. All the other years had declined. Uh, and the only way the studios made up for it is by every year raising the prices you say you bought the tickets and this is where i always wonder like this is kind of the nuances of entrepreneurship like one possible decision could have been hey let's partner with all the theater companies because they're also experiencing a problem of declining audience and have them yeah. give let's give them 50 percent of the company and they split equally between them or pro rata between them that 50 percent, and they give us the millions of movie tickets so you don't have to spend that money yeah Great strategy. Uh, we tried it to a certain extent. We had a, uh, even before I joined MoviePass, there was a two-year partnership with AMC in Boston and Denver to prove out what the impact of MoviePass was on AMC loyalty club members. A third party analyzed the data and saw that those AMC club members who joined MoviePass bought twice as many dollars worth of concessions at 80% margin. They went to the movies twice as often. We thought that would happen, but I kept getting pushback. And as I got to learn what was going on in that industry is that the studios have pretty much a stranglehold on the pricing models that theaters do. Mm. You saw this last week, they had this $3 uh, a movie ticket you could buy for the day. And I think they sold 4 million tickets, something uh, it may not be the right number, but the movie theaters as an industry, as a group, had to fight like crazy just to get a Tuesday discount day from the studios. They had to fight like crazy to get senior discount days back 20, 20 30 years ago. And think about it. Why do you pay the same thing for Top Gun as you would a small independent, you know, like uh, I, Tanya. It's because the studios have established a minimum amount you have to pay us regardless of what you charge. And that minimum amount forces higher pricing and removes the ability for theaters to do dynamic pricing like they do in Europe and Latin America and all over the world except for the U.S. So when you were negotiating with theater chains, they felt probably too obligated to get the blessing of the studios to do a deal with you. To do a bigger strategic deal. We did get uh, 2,000 screens, uh, mostly all, all, all independents, uh, to integrate into our app, give us a 25% discount. Uh, and, and that worked really well. And in fact, that's all we wanted. We wanted the same price that you would pay if you walk into a Costco. Anybody who's a Costco member can walk into a Costco and buy a booklet of AMC tickets or other some of the other big chains all at a 25% discount. That's all we wanted. We didn't we didn't want any more than that because that was one of the six ways uh, for us to get to profitability. And and why do you think 
Like you mentioned how Spotify was able to raise billions of dollars. What do you think was the stumbling block? And I mean, you discuss a lot in, in the book, but we're just talking like, what do you think was the big yeah. stumbling block in, in raising money? It just happened too quick. You know, this going from 20,000 subscribers to 3.2 million subscribers was like nine months. And so it just happened, you know, too quick. You know, in hindsight, I should have had a waiting list because we had to not only resolve capacity issues, fraud issues, partnership issues, adding these new revenue streams, and it just went too fast. You know, it took Spotify much longer to get to their first million subscribers. I mean, could you have been acquired? Like, could you have called Netflix and say, hey, uh, this is a good business, acquire us? Because like YouTube is an example where YouTube would have gone out of business because of their storage costs, but yep. Google bought them for whatever it was, 500 million. And yeah. that was the way they solved that problem. They would Otherwise, they would have had the same demise as MoviePass. I had uh, a conversation uh, with Reed Hastings uh, during this process. And in his opinion, in, in some ways he's right, movie theaters were going out of business anyway. So he was not interested in, um, in, in the business itself. The only thing he's interested in is when the Academy or the Cannes Film Festival uh, it, um, institutes these archaic rules about qualifying that you need to have a theatrical showing. What he'll do is he'll buy out a movie theater uh, for a week or two weeks uh, and show one of the Netflix films just to get qualification. That's his only interest in, in uh, theaters. And, and at one point um, at MoviePass, we won the bid on buying Landmark Cinema, uh, you know, about 50 theaters around the U.S. Oh, Some didn't Mark Cuban own that? He owned, That's who we uh, were negotiating with, Mark and Todd Wagner, who was his yeah. partner. And uh, uh, the deal fell through. And when it was falling, because our funding fell through, and that's when I reached out to Reed um, uh, because I thought this is the perfect combo. Uh, but he was not interested because he didn't believe in the future of theaters. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, that initial 
when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Let me brainstorm a little more, if you don't mind. I'm I'm pretending I'm on the board of MoviePass in 2019 when things are getting heated. Ouch! <laughs> and uh, so, so a lot of XPass spinoffs have resulted from the MoviePass idea, like ClassPass. I was working with a comedy club for a while that they were doing LaughPass to have tickets to comedy mm-hmm. shows all over the country. All of this stemmed from your original idea of MoviePass, or the original concept, and and all of them are having similar kinds of issues and problems. But one thing that's interesting is that a lot of companies, I like to take American Express. A mm-hmm. lot of people within American Express likes to offer benefits to their customers. Could you have done a, a distribution deal with American Express where like, hey, if someone gets a platinum American Express, you know, one dollar mm-hmm. of their, you know, they they get access to movie pass as well or right. some percentage of movie pass. Could you have done deals like that? I think that's a good idea that um you know, we had a pretty good uh, business development group that was working on deals like that. Uh, iHeartMedia, for example, uh, we launched a partnership where with MoviePass, you also got their Spotify-like music service uh, at, a, at a, I think, a 70% discount. So, you know, we had a number of programs like that, but they all those were kind of, uh, you know, kind of helping out on the edges. You know, the yeah. the overall problem in any kind of all-you-can-eat subscription, and we had this at Netflix too, is that the first people who are attracted to use the service are those people who are heavy users to begin with. And so they just max out on this all-you-can-eat subscription. So to survive and to get to kind of a lower uh, usage, we were going to pay more for the tickets than what we were bringing in revenue. To get there, we needed more people in the Midwest and we needed more of the average consumer. And that takes time because you get those heavy users and and those users in expensive markets. That was the biggest kind of determinant is, you know, you need more time in those all-you-can-eat programs. Now, it's interesting because through all of this is again, the element of consuming content and making content decisions easier, mm-hmm. even in terms of like how much you have to move. So like with the original Netflix, oh, I don't have to go to the video store. I can get mailed stuff. Maybe I have to go to the post office later. Uh, and mm-hmm. then ultimately streaming with, with, even with movie pass, I don't have to decide whether to see a movie. I should see a movie because I paid for this movie pass. Yeah. By the way, there's an interesting kind of Warren Buffett-like thing with MoviePass too, which is people pay you in advance for things they haven't yet done. And mm-hmm. so you have a float like an insurance company has. Was there any right. possibility? I mean, you weren't profitable, so I guess there wasn't possibilities of investing that float for for additional profits. But that's an interesting part of the subscription model too, when people are paying way in advance. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and you know, that's the the concept we... Uh, launched in uh, November, December of 2018, where we sold an annual pass. And um, 
you know, for a hundred dollars. So it was a 20% discount, even from our already low price. Uh, and, you know, we were all, uh, you know, our plan was to raise prices eventually once we got to 5 million subscribers. That was a number we thought, okay, now we have enough clout and enough, we're, we're helping so much uh, that the theaters couldn't help but at least give us that 25% discount. And what did it, like, obviously you had the email addresses of these 5 million people. Would mm -hmm. it have been, uh, and maybe you did this as a revenue source, but could you have charged studios to advertise on that email list? Yeah. And in the early part of 2018, we were earning anywhere from a half a million to almost a million dollars a month uh, in advertising, mostly from small studios. And, uh, you know, we would, sh we showed, I, I know I keep using the Itania example, but uh, we found that when we promoted a title to our subscriber base, uh, you know, of course, we would look at likelihood to enjoy that film based on their history. But when we promoted a film like I, Tanya, 18% of our subscribers would go to that movie within a week. And that is the, you know, you can't find targeted uh, uh, marketing any better than that. So that, so we wanted the studios to pay us one to two dollars per ticket uh, that we purchased when we promote their film for them it was a great deal because every dollar a studio makes in the box office translates to on average ten dollars in downstream revenues higher revenue uh, contracts when you're licensing etc oh i didn't know that so so who owns that email list now the founders or one of the founders bought the company out of bankruptcy. And I'm assuming that list was a part of the assets. Because it seems like if you shut off every other part of MoviePass except that email list, like you say, you can make a million bucks a month with with relatively little costs. Like yeah. you, just, you, you, you just send out an email every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what they're... They just launched... They relaunched MoviePass this last week. Uh, oh, I didn't you know, know With a, a big variation. Uh, it's a point system. So there's a $10, $20, $30 plan. Uh, they opened it up as a waiting list. Uh, they, I guess they got 775,000 people signing up uh, for it. And then they opened on Monday in three markets, uh, I think Kansas City, and I can't think of what the other two markets are, but uh, it's a, I have it, of course, I live in Mexico, so I can't use it, but it's um, a points-based system. And are you involved with with the new movie pass at all? You decided not to participate? Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not involved. Yeah, it's it's still it's still an interesting idea. I don't, I mean, probably everybody now would say movie theaters are on the decline. So maybe that's a suspect part. But the email list seems very powerful. Like five yeah. million people on an active email list, and you demonstrated that oh, 18% of the people who get an email are going to the movie. That is like so powerful, it's ridiculous. Yeah, but remember the reason the it wasn't the how creative the advertising was. It was I've already paid for it. I don't have to pay anything to take your recommendation of a film. So mm. it would be hard to well, you it'd be impossible to get those same kind of results uh, if the person now has to pay ten or fifteen dollars for the ticket. Yeah, although they do buy concessions, but um, I guess the the studios don't benefit from that. But maybe people yeah. who like Itania, for instance, like other things, and you're able to target yep. those advertisers. It's just, yeah. it's just. I'm saying this is a this is a, a hot list of people who have recently given their credit card information to you, so they're interested in paying for content. So, yep. so just on that basis alone, people who produce content would would be interested in that list. Yeah, great list. But anyway, is segueing here with brainstorming. But it's 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 interesting how you build these things. I used to work at HBO, and I remember thinking, that first I remember thinking, and this is in the '90s, so I don't know what it costs now for companies to to buy movies. But back then, to get the studio to let HBO have a free run with Batman would cost like mm -hmm. sixty million dollars. But it yeah. was worth it because when you have thirty million subscribers paying thirty bucks a month, you're essentially making a billion dollars a month. It's ridiculous right. how much money HBO was making. Like they were the most valuable part by far of the Time Warner family. Yeah, yeah. It's the those numbers have just gone. You know, just keep going up. Uh, you know, today most mostly 
HBO and Netflix, you know, licenses or or buy makes their own product. Uh, you know, the Amazon Prime, they they gave uh, the owners of the Lord of the Rings, the Tolkien estate, $250 million just for the rights to make a sequel or a prequel. And then they spent another 300 and some odd million dollars to make the first season. So it's a lot. Like if you were going to get, if Netflix was going to um, distribute or have Top Gun on its service, what do you think they pay for Top Gun? It would easily be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Wow. And so you really yeah. need like some PhDs in math to figure out what's worth it and what's not. Like, would you, yeah. if you, if you had every movie but Top Gun, would you make those hundreds of millions less in revenues at the end of the year? It's really, you know, it is a, a, a fascinating analytical uh, problem. It's a combination of, of what does the competitor have and who are the people who are churning at Netflix and would that keep them from quitting? Uh, maybe you've had this experience, but many, whether it's Showtime or HBO uh, or other streaming services, like Netflix and Disney Plus, what when they launch a big new series, what they get is they get a lot of people signing up and then quitting right after they've they binge watched or watched that whole uh, series. So what the sites have to do is they have to look at who is it that this appeals to and would it prevent people who we believe are about to quit, would it prevent them from quitting uh, and staying longer? So it's, um, you know, even Netflix, if you look at it, you know, between four, around 4% of all subscribers cancel every month. So, you know, that if you kind of work that out, that's like not more, not much more than two years and everybody is canceled. Yet, how, how could you have 200 million users and 100 of those in the U.S.? Uh, if you lose them every two years, after eight years, like what, what do you do? So what happens is people quit and then come back, quit and then come back. And that's where uh, the formula of what content, the license uh, becomes really interesting. It all is around changing the churn impact on your business, like reducing churn. But it's interesting, like HBO kind of paved the way where they started with being just a movie channel and then they mm -hmm. added live sports and that was you know the the light bulb that oh if we produce something that also creates users and then they started producing original content and then of course mm -hmm. showtime followed and and now you know many years later we have netflix amazon disney plus and a billion other right. streaming services making original content so at some point when does streaming become a commodity because you can't even brand yourself with original content because there's pretty much just as good original content on every service. Unless yeah, you specifically yeah. need to watch Squid Game, I can find just as good a, a, original content on HBO Max or Disney Plus. Yeah. I think, um, you know, entertainment, uh, you know, when you separate out the kind of these big hit titles, these icons, is really a commodity. It's really, I'm filling, I need to fill some time with some fun or learning or I, you know, it's, it's really a time issue. How much time uh, can I fill with it? But you're right now that everybody has amazing stuff, but different, you know, Disney is more than half the size of Netflix in less than two years. And it's because of their content. So I think it already is commoditized in a lot of people's minds. And I think they, in the same way that there's no reason to ever buy a movie or a TV series anymore, I think that same holds true is that, you know, maybe I'll watch Netflix for a couple months and then I'll switch over to Disney and then I'll switch over to Paramount Plus just to, you know, kind of have a fresh new inventory of things to watch. So I don't think there's the loyalty that there was, let's say, before Disney Plus uh, launched two years ago. Yeah, because then, I mean, I just saw an ad yesterday for a streaming service I never heard of, Mubi, M-U-B-I, and uh -huh. never heard of it, don't know what it is, but suddenly they're advertising. So it's like getting more and more. So what's what do you think Netflix mm -hmm. will do? Netflix being the leader, will they do mm -hmm. anything to, you know, just as Blockbuster failed to do something, 
mm-hmm. what will will Netflix be able to kind of overcome this commoditization? Yeah. Well, I think they they've realized they've got to keep, you know, creating great content, but they've got to do something more. And they've already announced uh, that they're going to create an AVOD service, an advertising supported service that's either free or super discounted because there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of consumers that can't afford uh, even the low price that they have. So that's one tactic. The second is they've been buying into gaming and they're now kind of toying with, they're doing a little bit of gaming, but I think this is, and this is only my opinion, this is part of this metaverse strategy to create this meta world of Netflix where their subscribers or users in the AVOD service can enter with their avatar into a mall or a a movie studio lot that is Netflix, they can not only browse categories and see previews, but they can talk to other customers like we all did in the video store days. They'll run into the avatar Mm -hmm. of, of a friend or someone you've never met and talk about a movie. They could even have the actors and creators of content in a red carpet environment there to interact with millions of people who can enter and 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 participate in that. So I think their gaming purchase shows that they're thinking five, 10 years ahead where our customers, you know, the main customers 10 years from now are like under 20 now. And they like to interact in this kind of meta world uh, in a gaming environment. So I think they're, you know, Netflix is very forward thinking in that category. I wonder if it's too late to build a Twitch-like service. So like, you know, you get the rights to to stream certain games and, mm-hmm. you know, I would love to be able to log on to Netflix and watch my favorite Twitch streams. So, yeah. uh, cause I don't think I can do that on Amazon Prime at all. I have to like go onto my oh. computer and, and not the TV. So right. no one's really done, I don't think, a kind of streaming Twitch-like service that's a little bit more live. Yeah, I, I I think that is a really interesting opportunity. It's it's amazing when you look at the YouTube stats of how many uh, how many viewers are watching people game you know playing games. Oh yeah, like you know this the stat of like I don't know the League of Legends, uh, 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 some championship in League of Legends uh, did better than like all the NBA finals like combined. <laughs> it's incredible. So, yeah, it's I know. Angry. It's incredible. It's like a different world. But even like content, like like take Squid Game as an example. You can, mm-hmm. I, I bet you there's a video on YouTube of the creator of Squid Game talking about his story of how he pitched around Squid Game. I bet you that has like 50 million views. And yeah, maybe there's a kind of content that's not quite the standard format, but that Netflix could start picking off from, from places like YouTube. Like YouTube's almost like a marketplace of content that Netflix could acquire. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they. I think everybody's got to be in the streaming world a little bit nervous about both YouTube and TikTok. Uh, you know, their companies like TikTok are hiring former Netflix executives to, and I think it's part of the strategy to make TikTok more Netflixy. And you know, Netflix on the other hand, trying to become more TikToky, and and I think part of that is you know, some collaboration with user-generated content, as well as all these other things that are related to the entertainment uh, world. So, you know, shorter form content, uh, I think user-created, I think those are are really the future of, of all those sites. You know, it's funny because TikTok, people make fun of TikTok and like, oh, I'm not going to waste my time on TikTok. TikTok <laughs> is amazing. Yeah. There is a, you know, out of 7 billion people, there's a set of about 5 million kids who are so mm-hmm. amazingly talented at whatever it is, like jumping off buildings or, you know, doing some cr- crazy magic or interviewing yep. people in the street in some crazy way and, and or dancing, of course. It, it's, it's amazing. So everybody who creates content is competing for eyeballs with TikTok. Like that's the high bar. Yeah. And yeah. it's difficult. Like the reason why, like, I watch any TV at all is because late at night, I'm with my wife, 
We're, mm -hmm. We had a long day and we don't want to go from TikTok. We just want to watch Mad Men and right. binge watch <laughs> right. it. So there's right. like a specific problem streaming services solves for us that TikTok doesn't. But other than that, yeah. I don't think I'd watch TV. I, it's not like I go in a cab and watch TV. I watch TikTok. So yeah. it's going to be interesting the next generation. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Here's a question I always wonder too. And you might not know the answer to this, but let's say there's all these streaming services and everybody's creating original content. How come there are still actors working as waiters? <laughs> like, why isn't every <laughs> actor and writer hired? <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, I, uh, but it may be like that chapter uh, in Freakonomics in the first version where I think the chapter is something like, you know, why did drug dealers and real estate agents work for minimum wage? Yeah, we, 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 that chapter was, why, why do crack dealers live with their moms? Yeah, exactly. And I think it's because, well, that that's, might be a different story. But the idea here is that that possibility that you could make it big attracts a huge amount of people wanting to get big, whether it's in the movie business or or in real estate. And so I think part of it, even though there's this huge renaissance, last year, there was over $120 billion spent 
by just the top 10 streaming companies on new content, just one year. And that's really just US. That's not, you know, the rest of the world, which you would think there's jobs galore, you know, for people. But uh, why? It may be that as it grows, the influx of people who want that career and believe they can do it, maybe it grows faster than, uh, you know. That must growth. be the case because, I mean, let's say before there was a hundred shows on prime time on ABC, NBC, CBS. Now there yeah. are 10,000 shows. There are more, there are a hundred thousand shows. So in each yeah. one hires a cast of 10, say, this is a million jobs for actor wannabes as opposed to 50 jobs for actor wannabes. Absolutely. You know, there's worldwide, there's 50, roughly 50,000 episodes created every year worldwide. Oh my God. I can't understand what, what that issue is. When, if someone wants to be an actor, they, they, they should just be able to just show up at the studio and say, I'm here. Like right. Right. how many people could be, you, you know, I, anyway, that's just a random question I had. No, it's it. It's an interesting thought. I don't know. The, uh, I don't really know the answer. I mean, what's a problem now you see out there that you would be interested in solving? Like if you were young in your 20s and thinking about entrepreneurship, what would it excite you right now? You know, um, I like to, to um, have some impact on the things that I deal with personally, you know, so that, you know, I kind of really feel the problem. And one of the, one of the things that I think is, is there's, kind of two categories. One is in, in entertainment. Uh, the other is in uh, startup investing. And one of the things that I think is in startup investing is when you as a, a angel investor uh, invest in someone you believe in and you, you're, you really believe in the passion and the project of a new company, uh, you wire the money and then you really don't, without a lot of work, you don't really have insight into what's going on, you know, and you don't want to, you don't want to have to attend shareholder meetings or board meetings or constant. So I think a, a platform using, you know, blockchain and smart contracts, I think there's a way to make it easier for small time investors, you know, who are putting 25 grand, 50 grand into uh, having more insight, having, you know, more insight into what the companies are doing. Uh, that's one. The other that I, I think is is such, is becoming a big challenge, and it's just as a result of these 50,000 episodes being made, is how do you find something you're going to like without working at it? And how do you find something you're going to like that's totally new, that's a surprise? Because I don't know about you, but I keep, when I search for stuff, I, it keeps popping up the same things, you know, that I've already seen or I've already rejected. So this ability to analyze content in a way that really can help you discover and, and help the studios figure out what to say to you versus me, I think that's um, a real interesting space. I mean, Netflix is dived into that a little bit, right? Like I remember one time yeah, yeah. years ago, they offered a huge prize for someone to improve the algorithm and the algorithm's yeah. pretty good. Like if I watch Downtown Abbey, I don't know, I forget if that mm -hmm. was on Netflix originally or not, but uh, then suddenly no. all these other 19th century and early 20th century British shows pop up on the screen. Right. They And that's, that is some of, that's one of the things that Netflix has gotten really, really good at. They... They not only use that in determining what content uh, to license or to create, but then once they have it, they know how to market it. And you'll notice over the last couple of years, there's now these three words beneath every title that indicate kind of the mood or how you're going to feel when watching that, that piece of content. And that is aimed at, that's dynamically presented to you because that's what they know will resonate with you and make you want to uh, see it, or at least be a clear indicator. But no one else is anywhere near as close as uh, Netflix is. And the only that your un, that understanding doesn't transfer. You know, if you're using Amazon Prime and you're using Netflix and you're using Disney, each one of those has their own different way to present content uh, to you. And by and large, it's not 
it's not very sophisticated. I mean, there's dozens of companies working on this. Uh, you know, the, the one I find the most fascinating is co-founded by the guy who wrote the Pandora music genome, uh, it, which was really responsible for Pandora getting that huge valuation and that sale to Sirius. He trained musicians to genomically code music uh, in thousands of attributes with like uh, 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 levels of strength, anywhere from one to 10. And that is, you know, if you if you go back to Pandora and look at the difference between music that was recommended to you there versus Spotify, it's like night and day difference. And he, amongst many others, are doing that same thing for movies and shows. That's fascinating because, I mean, TikTok is known, for instance, for having a great algorithm because mm -hmm. they know within the first few seconds they A-B test every piece of content immediately and they have millions of billions of users. So they're able to, yeah. to very quickly see what they should rise to the top in the algorithm. But Netflix doesn't have as many, you know, all the streaming services, you're watching a two hour movie, you're not watching a 30 second clip. So it's harder to do that kind of, it's a different type of service. So you can't do that kind of algorithm. You know, yeah. you know another area where I feel the streaming services are, are losing eyeballs is, let's say I love, again, Squid Game as an example. Mm -hmm. Now I want to talk about it with somebody. Well, mm -hmm. on Reddit, there's a million people talking about Squid Games on Reddit. On YouTube, there's a million people commenting on videos that analyze the last episode. of. Uh -huh. And I feel like that's a place where the streaming services haven't really cared much about uh, keeping the eyeballs around for the discussion. Yeah. You know, I think that's a result of uh, binge watching. Mm -hmm. It's hard to, if you have people talking about like episode one or episode six, and someone else is just starting episode one, it kind of, mm -hmm. you know, ruins the kind of the evolution of the entertainment. So, you know, in fact, I think it really is bad in some ways for building buzz around a series. Not that we go to work anymore, but in the days where we would go to work, we could talk about, you know, the, the um, uh, Sopranos, third episode because we were all on the same, you know, episode. You weren't going to give it away. Uh, you know, there was always a cliffhanger. Hey, what do you think is going to happen? Who's going to get shot? So I think even though binge watching has huge benefits and I do it myself all the time and love it, I think it removes that ability to socialize uh, your opinion and conversation, at least on the site itself. Yeah, that's true. No, that, that's a good point. So it's interesting, like right now, you're focused on, I guess, angel investing, speaking. Mm -hmm. What's exciting you about the future? Where do you see the future of, of content going? Do you also, do you think with, with so many shows being made, do you think, do you think the, the peak television has passed in terms of quality or are we still yet to have peak quality television? I th I I think we still are going to see you know more interesting content. Uh, I think you know the competition you know goes beyond the special effects and into you know really good storytelling, and that that still is hard to do. I think the I'm really excited uh, about the future because I think this kind of combination of of the ability for almost anybody to make content you know with an iPhone you know, with uh, some story making skills. I think that combined with the professionals and the streaming services that, you know, even these ones that don't have gatekeepers like a Netflix or so on, um, I think that's going to create a whole new world of this kind of combined entertainment. And I think this opening up into a whole new world and new ways to watch I think that I, that to me is uh, going to be very interesting. It will be interesting because I feel like from, let's say, 2000 to 2015 and 2015 maybe being the beginning, a lot of these streaming services or the, or the rise in popularity of streaming services, there was sort of this yeah. golden age of television. You had all the HBO shows, then you had AMC coming out with like Mad Men and Breaking Bad and, right. you know, every, every network that was doing original programming was making amazing shows. And now these streaming services are making so many shows. Like yeah. you said earlier, it's really hard to find good ones. And I'm sure there's good ones on every network or every streaming service, but 
everything on HBO was great. Everything that yeah. AMC was putting out was great or Showtime or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and, and like, like Mad Men or Breaking Bad was almost like this peak, this golden age of, of television where, where TV was beautiful. And, and I mm -hmm. guess that's still true for the best shows, but I wonder if that starts to get more and more diluted. Yeah, I, I, you know, we're just, you know, are coming out of, you know, the worst part of the pandemic and people really gorged on, you know, watching stuff at, at home or, you know, on their TV or mobile device. And, you know, there's naturally going to be a decline, you know, in uh, viewing. And that may, uh, you know, have more people working in, in the restaurants as waiters. But I think the opportunity to create content is going to like pervade our lives. You know, it's going, you know, this idea of product placement is going to turn into, you know, big billboards or even monitors in sidewalks that know who you are and are promoting either a piece of content or a product or a service. Uh, and I think our, I think, you know, 10 years from now, we will look around and go, geez, there's monitors everywhere. Uh, you know, trying to get us to look at what they want to sell us or what they want us to watch. You can even, and I talk about this in the last chapter of my book, is, you know, the future is, you know, driverless cars driving down the street and all the billboards are showing a series you're watching and they know when you pass by and, you know, just keeps going to the next billboard. You know, maybe that's a little too crazy, but I think uh, I think we're going to live in a world, at least in cities, where it's going to be monitors galore, more than people. Finally, I'm curious, why do you live in Mexico right now? What brought you to Mexico? I just, you know, I fell in love with living on the beach and um, or near the beach, I guess. Uh, and, uh, you know, I love the food. I love the people. Uh, it's just a it's just a really nice place uh, to live. Yes, there's some dangerous places in Mexico, but uh, as long as you stay away from, you know, a few little cities, it's uh, it's a safe and and really fun place to live. Well, Mitch Lowe, you've been in the center of the entertainment industry for decades, uh, essentially co-founder of Netflix, Redbox, MoviePass, and so many great insights about entrepreneurship. I highly recommend everyone read your, your book just out, Watch and Learn. And the subtitles: How I Turned Hollywood Upside Down with Netflix, Redbox, and MoviePass. And then a further subtitle: I've never seen a second <laughs> subtitle. Lessons in Disruption. And Mark Randolph, who you mentioned was the true founder of Netflix, is writes the forward. So great book, great stories, great insights. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. I, I super appreciate it, and uh, I look forward to the next time. Great. Yeah, no, it's great to see you again. And uh, yeah, maybe I'll be on episode 2000. Yeah. Oh, and I want to mention, by the way, there's you've been on a lot of great podcasts and done a lot of great interviews, which is why sometimes I didn't go all, all into the details of your personal stories. People should listen to all the podcasts that you've been on because it really covers a lot of different facets of the book and the, and the stories you tell. I just wanted to kind of answer my, you know, talk about my questions about the entertainment industry and, and you were very gracious in answering. So thank you. Yeah, no, this was a lot of fun. It was great to see you. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.